Dr. Erica Sloan is a cancer researcher, um, cancer biologist at Monash Institute of Pharmacy. I believe there's quite a group of you here from Monash Pharmacy. <laughs> um, but really, I want to introduce her as one of my former lecturers, um, and I would like to give her the most personal, personable and approachable lecturer award. Um, so essentially, she was one of my mentors, and I believe she's going to talk about one of her mentors tonight. So I just thought it would be a nice little chain of events to um, introduce her. For those of you who care about science, hopefully quite a few of you, um, the research her team is doing is really interesting as well. You should go and chat to her about it afterwards. Um, they're re researching cancer and stress, and really importantly, they've found that beta blockers, so um, drugs formerly used for um, blood pressure a lot of the time, um, help in cancer treatment quite significantly. So you might want to go and talk to her about that later, but please make Dr. Erica Sloan feel very welcome. There's a big shiny new building just down Sydney Road that was recently opened by Vice President Biden. And if you walk into the sparkling, airy lobby of the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre, before you get to the lifts against the back wall there, the floor opens up into this big amphitheatre of steps that descend into the basement. This morning, George walks down those steps, hopefully for the last time. So about two years ago, sorry, two years ago, two months ago, George was diagnosed with laryngeal or throat cancer. And his treatment team decided that the best approach was radiotherapy, so they could hopefully preserve his voice box. His treatment consisted of daily radiotherapy for three weeks, followed by twice daily treatments for the last two weeks. And the effect of this um, accelerated, fractionated radiotherapy regime has been quite remarkable. So in the last week, they've really noticed that the tumour has just melted away. And his doctor is quite enthusiastic that the tumour cells that had spread from the main tumour into the normal surrounding tissue have all been killed. And the best part is that the radiation hasn't damaged the rest of him. And so this afternoon, George was reflecting on how different things were for his grandfather, who was diagnosed with prostate cancer in the 60s. George was just a boy then, but he remembers how tough the treatment was on his grandfather and how the dose of radiation not only killed the tumour, but also nearly killed his grandfather. He remembers how sick his grandfather was after treatment, and on reflection, he really wonders whether it was worth it because how within the space of a year, the cancer came back and took his grandfather's life. Now, this is actually not the story of George. George is a hypothetical patient but he's actually not that dissimilar to the other 200 or so patients who received radiotherapy at Peter Mac just today. So killing tumours with therapeutic doses of radiation has become one of the main treatment modalities for cancer. It's responsible for 40% of cancer cures. And for nearly 50 years, Professor Hubert Rodney Withers was an intellectual giant in the field of radiation biology. He was responsible for bringing quantitation into treatment, and it's his work and some of the work of his colleagues but really shifted radiotherapy from a blunt instrument where the treatment often came close to killing the patient as well as the tumour, to a refined and smart tool where treatment is given in multiple small doses which both minimises the side effects for patients while killing not just the, the whole tumour but visible um, but sneaky cells that have escaped into the surrounding organs. 
So I first met Professor Withers, or Rod as he liked to be known, um, about 15 years ago, not long after I moved to Los Angeles to start a postdoc at UCLA. As Sarah mentioned, I'm a cancer biologist and my lab studies the impact of stress on cancer biology. And I have to admit to not knowing a whole lot about radiation biology. And I'm indebted to Professor Lester Peters, the former head of radiation oncology at Peter Mac, who really helped me understand some of Rod's science. So my path here actually included a PhD with Professor Robin Anderson at Peter Mac, and then six years of training in neuroimmunology at University of California. And it was during this time that I got to know Rod. He was a very dapper, white-haired gentleman with a twinkle in his eyes who everyone adored. And during this time, he became one of my most beloved unofficial mentors, helping me to navigate the US academic system. He influenced my social life and how I learned to run my fledgling lab. And he guided my eventual return to a faculty position in Australia. And for many years, he was a grandfather figure to me. And it really wasn't until close to the end of his life that I began to appreciate the magnitude of his contributions to science and medicine. But one thing at a time, let me tell you a little bit more about Rod. So Rod studied medicine at University of Queensland in the mid-50s, and he did specialty training to become a radiation oncologist at what was then known as the Queensland Radium Institute. But he was never satisfied with just treating patients. He really wanted to know how things worked. And this inquisitive nature led him to London and to the lab of Professor Hal Gray, where he did a PhD. And if that name sounds a little bit familiar, it's likely because the name of his mentor, Gray, became the standard international unit of radiation. So from all accounts, the Gray lab was an amazing place to be in that time. Hal Gray believed that radiobiology sat at the intersection of biology and chemistry and physics and medicine. And so he was really into interdisciplinary science, way ahead of his time. He drew together scientists, clinicians, mathematicians from all over the world to try and better understand radiation and its effects on the body and how it might be used in medicine. Hell suggested that Rod investigate how normal tissues respond to irradiation. And so it was known clinically at that time that radiation was damaging to normal tissues um, for example, above a certain dose, a patient's skin becomes thin and red and starts to weep and ulcerate. As a PhD student, Rod worked out what causes this to happen and worked out how to avoid it. And so to do this, he developed a relatively simple assay. He defined a, a small circle on the skin of a mouse and he exposed that circle to a graded dose of radiation. And he then determined how many stem cells survived that insult by counting the number of colonies of skin cells that grew back. And so the idea was that each colony derived from one or more stem cells. And so by counting the colonies and applying Poisson statistics, he could calculate how many stem cells survived that dose of radiation. Rod found that if a dose was sufficiently high that it left fewer than one stem cell in a million surrounding cells, then the tissue would not be able to recover and would be left permanently ulcerated. But if he dropped the radiation dose by just a fraction so that even only 10 to 20 stem cells survived radiation, then in a particular square centimetre, then the skin would recover and the ulcer would heal. But while he was doing this, he also noticed something highly significant. He found that 
by dividing the radiation into two smaller doses and varying the time between the doses, he could control how many stem cells survived. So that is, rather than giving radiation in one big hit, by delivering the same dose in multiple smaller hits of radiation, he allowed time for the stem cells to recover and regenerate the skin, reducing the risk of ulceration. And so by using a fractionated dose, Rod defined that the normal or non-cancer cells could repair the damage to their DNA and repopulate the skin. In later work, he established that this capacity to repair was greater for normal tissues than most tumours, and as you will see, this had really important implications for modern-day radiotherapy. But first, that was his PhD. So Hal Gray died not long before Rod completed his PhD, and he returned to, briefly to Australia. But really, there wasn't much going on in the field of research for radiation biology at that point in Australia, and so he was off again, this time to the National Institutes of Health outside of Washington. And he went there to work with Mortimer Elkind. Building on the work that he'd done in London, Rod and Mort developed an assay in gut. Um, and again, to determine how stem cells in this very radiosensitive um, tissue respond to irradiation. And this time they went beyond normal stem cells and they also started looking at how tumours respond to radiation. If a particular dose of irradiation is not lethal to a cell, if it doesn't kill it, then the damage to that cell can be repaired. And while this is absolutely desirable when our normal organs are exposed to irradiation, in a cancer cell where the DNA is already pretty messed up, this can have disastrous consequences, resulting in very aggressive cancer cells that spread more easily. Rod and Mort found that repeated small doses of radiation, appropriately timed, could be, selectively, could be used to selectively um, could selectively prevent cancer cells from repairing their DNA relative to the rest of the cells in our body. And the practical implications of this, 30 years later, won um, Rodney Withers and Mortimer Elkind the US government Fermi Award with a presidential citation from President Bill Clinton. So after his time at the NCI, Rod moved to the Department of Experimental Radiotherapy at the prestigious MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, where he could both see patients and conduct his research. And this is where things really came together for him. He used his understanding of the tumour's response to irradiation relative to the response of otherwise normal healthy tissue to optimise dose fractionation. With his colleagues, Howard Thames, a biomathematician, and Lester Peters, who we met earlier, who at that time was head of radiation oncology and later moved to MD Anderson, um, from MD Anderson to the Peter Mac, he came up with a calculation which was known as the linear quadratic iso effect formula that is still today the gold standard for determining how to give radiotherapy to a patient when the doctor's intent is to cure them of the cancer rather than for palliation. Through his work in the Gray Labs and the Elkine Labs before this, Rod had demonstrated that all our different organs, spleen, skin, gut, all respond quite differently to a particular dose of radiation. And each of them will have a different capacity to regenerate after being damaged by irradiation. And he had shown that cancer behaves differently again. So just a little bit of science. This comes about because cancer cells are most sensitive to killing by radiation when they're in the G2M phase of the cell cycle. And so if you think back to first-year biology, the G2M phase is when the cell is actively dividing or about to divide. 
In contrast, when a cell's in S phase, it's replicating its DNA and it's pretty resistant to cell killing. So normal cells in your body divide at different rates. They move from the S phase into the G2M at different rates. But cancer cells do this very rapidly. And so if a tumour is irradiated, the tumour cells that are actively dividing will be sensitive to irradiation and killed. If a second low dose is given at a specific time later, then the cells that were in S will have transitioned to G2M, and they'll now be sensitive. Meanwhile, all the surrounding normal healthy cells in your body that divide much more slowly will still not have made it out of S phase, and so they'll still be protected from cell death at that lower radiation dose. And so it was this realisation that led to Rod's work proposing two novel variants of the standard dose fractionation. And since then, there's been multiple phase three clinical studies that have demonstrated that each of these approaches yields much, much better outcomes for patients. So one of these approaches is called hyperfractionation, and it involves giving low incremental doses of radiation twice daily, considerably below the two gray that was conventionally used before this, at around 1.2 gray. The other approach is called accelerated fractionation, and it involves twice daily treatments of around 1.6 to 2 gray to reduce the overall treatment time, and it's very, very effective for cancers that have a very rapid regenerative potential. And so collectively, this work has defined the treatment strategy that's used for pretty much all the patients that receive radiotherapy as part of their treatment with the intention of trying to cure their cancer. So having done all that, in 1980, Rod moved west from Houston to California and to UCLA. And he worked in the Department of Radiation Oncology um, for a number of years and became its head in 1995. And then Professor Peters was telling me he became emeritus in 2008, which really made me laugh because that was about the time I got to know Rod. And he certainly was not the type who believed in retirement. He was still coming into work most days leaving at 5.30 or 6 p.m. after he'd put in a full day in the office. And his mind never stopped. I recall conversations over bad coffee in the hospital cafeteria with him telling me about more papers that had to be written from data that were in boxes in his office. I actually can't remember the first time I met Rod, but it was likely through the Australian expat community, which was very active in Los Angeles in the mid-2000s. Rod and his wife Janet really enjoyed attending a lot of events that were put on by Australians in film. And I had been very engaged in Advance, which was a mentoring and networking organisation of Australian professionals working globally. At the time, I chaired the Life Sciences Network in Los Angeles, and we hosted events for visiting academics and industry leaders. And Professor Peter Doherty had been in touch. He'd recently published his second book, The Beginner's Guide to Winning a Nobel Prize, and wanted to do a book gig. I'm thinking, where do you hold a book gig for a Nobel laureate? And so, of course, I went to Rod and asked him, and his answer shouldn't have surprised him. Of course, he offered his house. And it was a stunning evening. Um, to put this into context, in LA, if you go up onto Sunset Boulevard, one of the places to be seen is up at the Sky Bar at the Mondrian Hotel. It has this beautiful view from downtown LA all the way out to the bay and to Santa Monica. Up above that is Chateau Marmont, which is where the A-list celebrities hang out and perhaps go to detox after their latest addiction. And then above that, nestled into the Hollywood Hills, was Rob and Janet's beautiful home, filled with art that they had collected from all over the world, 
a terrace outdoor with an outdoor fire pit where they hosted a party for maybe 50 Australians and Peter Doherty um, on a gorgeous evening back in 2006. So by 2008, 2009, the financial crisis had hit the US and UCLA, like most institutes across the US, had a total hiring freeze. And it became quite clear that a faculty position was not going to materialise and I was going to need to move on. And so at that point, job prospects in Australia were much better than in the US and I began thinking about what to do next. And this is when Rod's mentor mentorship became really invaluable. I recall brainstorming sessions in the botanical gardens at UCLA as he coaxed out of me what my ideal job might look like. And he coached me in writing letters and preparing for job seminars. I arranged interviews in Australia, including one at University of Queensland. And it happened to be when Rod and Janet were back visiting Australia. Um, and Rod arranged to come and listen to me and he sat quietly in the back row as I gave my job talk. And it remains one of my fondest memories of him. It was about that time, or maybe a little bit later, that I first became aware that Rod had Parkinson's disease. I was at the gym after work and I ran into him and Janet and they were there for a rehab session. Initially the disease affected his movement, but then it progressed to affect his voice and this loss of communication was devastating for him and really led to his retreat. The last time I saw Rod was in 2011. I had started here at Monash University and I was briefly back at UCLA. And when Rod heard I was in town, he invited me up to his house and cooked beautiful dinner. And ever the gentleman refused to let me catch a cab and insisted on driving me back to Westwood. He died in February 2015. So in addition to his contribution to science, there is a beautiful portrait of him that hangs in the National Portrait Gallery in Canberra. And it really encapsulates the man that I remember. He's very smart in a suit. And his tie is just a little off-centre with a few buttons showing, kind of this air of casualness. And he gazes at the camera through these sort of half-closed eyes which are framed with laugh lines. And there's this ever-present smile playing on his lips. Drawing us back into the present this morning, George, our hypothetical patient, wasn't the only one down in the basement at Peter Mac. He was joined by 200 real patients who today alone received radiotherapy for cancer. Of them, maybe 150, 160 had treatment that was directly determined by Rod Withers' discoveries. Multiply that by the number of treatment centres across Australia and around the world, and you begin to appreciate the impact of Rod's depth of thought and his contribution to science and medicine.